This podcast is a ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Hatfield, Pennsylvania. And now, the message. Well, we have been doing a series. Uh, yeah, the series is titled, A Beautiful Mess. And uh, we're studying the book of 1 Corinthians. It's a letter written to a church a lot like ours, a church in a city called Corinth. Um, it was a pretty cosmopolitan, affluent, hip-happening place. And G- uh, Paul uh, led some people to the Lord on one of his journeys. They formed a church, and they began to reach out to their community. Unfortunately, instead of, um, I- instead of influencing their culture and their community, as it turned out, these believers in this church were letting their culture and their community influence them instead. And so Paul has been, he's written this letter and he's addressing the things that he's heard about and and he's going to, today he's going to try to bring some of that to a close with a challenge to them to make some corrections. You see, what had happened is they put their faith in in the gospel message that Jesus died for them, as simple as that was. But after Paul left, they began to adopt the values of the world around them. They began to think that things should be cooler than this. Things should be deeper than this. We should be more impressive than this. And they began to pursue what looked like wisdom to the world. And the result of that was their spiritual development was arrested, stopped, dead. Paul describes them as being immature, being carnal, In fact, even as he's trying to correct them, they're having trouble understanding them because they are so infantile in their spiritual development. So he's been working with them, trying to address the issues. He addressed divisions. They were picking sides. Oh, he's my favorite teacher. He's my favorite teacher. Well, I follow Jesus, and I'm more spiritual than all of you. And there's all this division, and and that division was based on these prideful kind of thoughts about who was looking more impressive. You see... Everyone in Corinth wanted to be on a winning team. The Apollos team, the Paul team, the Peter team, the Jesus team. Everyone wanted to be more superior than the other believers around them. They wanted to be on a winning team. The irony, Paul says, what's so ironic about you guys dividing over these kind of things is that you're picking sides over teachers, and the truth is all those teachers are working for the same thing. He says, we are all merely servants. And being servants, we're all equal with each other. We're all accountable to the master. Oh, we do different kinds of work. We talked about that last week and the week before. We do different kinds of work, and there are different phases of the work. But he says, the truth is, we're still on the same team. How can you pick sides when we're all on the same team? He says, by the way, all of us who are working in in this project of God's, we're also accountable to him. He's going to hold us accountable for what kind of work we do. So we're not really worried what you think of us so much as what he thinks of us. We're going to get into that a little bit later in our study of the book. So he's trying to correct these things in the city of Corinth, and he's saying to them, I, can't, I don't understand why you would be picking sides when actually we are all in the same work and the leaders are all on the same team 
and we're working for the one master, everything that gets done is the result of his power anyway. And at the very end of this last section that we just looked at, he says, and by the way, remember that building inspector, Jesus, who's going to come? What you need to know is that he is on site now. It's not just that he's going to do an inspection someday. He's on site now. And he's working around us right now. And instead, we're distracted with other leaders. Well, I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 16 today. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, there's a blue hardcover Bible in, in probably one of the chair pockets in front of you. Or you can watch up here, and uh, we will project these passages as we go along. Starting in verse 16, Paul writes this. He says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? Interesting. Don't you know? Now, I don't know if you've ever used tone like that with someone. Or if anyone's ever used that tone with you. But a question like this with the kind of tone that it brings is generally not a pleasant experience. Wait, 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 wait. Don't you know? You can almost hear the duh. There's a tension in the air right away. And the tension is because Paul has been unloading on them, trying to correct them, and today he's going to bring it to a close. And he says, don't you know? That you yourselves. Now, language is a funny thing. Um, if, you were, if you were coming from Greece today, you, if you spoke Greek, whether it was modern day Greek or ancient Greek, you would find the English language kind of weird. And this is one of those experiences when you would just say, I, I don't understand. It doesn't make sense. You see, in, in Greek, when you're talking about you, one person, that's one word. And if you're going to talk to use guys, that's a completely different word. But in English, we just use the same word. You or you. And so we need to point out that when Paul says, you yourselves, that's really the translators trying to catch this idea. <laughs> you know how we would say it, right? Use guys, y'all, depending on which direction you're from. I'm trying to, you know, see, I'm trying to be very cosmopolitan, cover all the bases. He says, all of you together, everyone. He's not saying each of you individually. Later in the book, he's going to talk about each of our bodies is also a temple. But that's not what he's saying here. He's saying, you, church, don't you know that you're the temple? of God, that you together are the temple. Interesting. You are. Not you will be someday once we get all the kinks worked out. You are, or you will be once you hit 200 on a Sunday morning. He says, you are now. You all are now God's temple. Not bunch of do-gooders, not a bunch of educators, not a bunch of worship music people. You are God's temple. God's temple. 
I wonder what Corinth, if it were depicted as a temple, I wonder what it would actually look like. Would it, would it, would the, would the roof be equal or off? Would the foundation be slipping? I wonder what it would look like. Of course, to be honest, these words for them would be very inspiring. The temple. And, and, and the readers of this would go, ooh. You know what's funny about Americans? The idea or the thought or the sight of a temple does not make us go, ooh. To be honest, I mean, temples don't really impress us much. There's a few. You go to St. Peter's, you know, you see some big, beautiful buildings. But as a whole, we're not very impressed with temples in our culture. I was trying to think, what would be the closest thing to a temple in our culture? And I think maybe a case could be made for one of the things that we would treat like a temple might be a stadium. First of all, you're kind of impressed by the engineering. And then you're kind of impressed by the way that, you know, so many thousands of people pack in. The power of all those people at once, cheering or, or waving or whatever they do, or booing, as the case may be. Um, maybe a stadium is closer to us, uh, our, our understanding, than, than a temple. You know, we see a temple, and, I mean, we see a stadium, and it stirs us because we think about the battles that go on inside. The contest. We think about the prowess, the strength, the skill that's displayed, the strategy involved. And we know that when we're done in there, there's going to be a winner and a loser. And some of us are foolish enough to cheer for Philadelphia teams. <laughs> we know disappointment, don't we? Yeah. Everybody, to be honest, everybody loves to identify with a group, preferably a winning group. And the believers in Corinth were no different. They wanted to be identified with a winning team. They were just looking in the wrong place. So uh, we don't do this often. And if you're a guest, I'm going to excuse you right away. You can just sit there and watch because this is a little scary. But every once in a while, we'll do a neighbor nudge. So today, we're going to do a neighbor nudge. Uh-huh. Okay, so here's, this is what all you're going to do is, is I'm going to, I've got a question or two for you. You just turn to somebody near you. Now, if the person that's sitting next to you is a spouse who is clueless, you can turn the other way. It's okay. Um, uh, if, if you're sitting in a row by yourself, it's okay to kind of get up and move towards somebody. They will appreciate that. So, First, a neighbor nudge here, and I've just got this question, a question or two that I want to let you talk about for just a second. If the Corinthian church was a professional football team, what would they be called? What would their mascot be? Okay, take a second and do a little neighbor nudge.
All right, so you had a chance just to chat. Uh, what does, is somebody willing to share maybe an idea that perked up as you guys were talking? What would they be called? What? The turkeys, okay, good. What else, what? Fornicators. <laughs> the fornicators, <laughs> yeah, 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 oh well, yeah, yeah, okay. Well then we are not gonna go with the mascot. That's <laughs> yeah, that's good, that's great. Any other ideas? Nobody wants to follow fornicators, okay. Yeah, P Paul. The cosmopolitans. Okay, good. Okay. Well, okay, so you see that that the the kind of players would affect the kind of team we would imagine. It's interesting that none of us really described a team that was winning. And yet winning was actually the very highest thing on their list. They wanted to be associated with a team that were, was winning. And we all say, as we watch from the outside, that's the last thing you guys remind me of. Okay, I've got another neighbor nudge for you, and then we're going to be done. If you were a pro football player, and somebody came to you with a large amount of cash and said, look, the game coming up is a really important game. I'm going to give you all this money. I need you to help throw the game. Okay. Now, you're a team. It's not like boxing where you're by yourself. I realize you're working with a team and everything and a coach. And so, but I want you to do your best to make it so that your team loses. Here's my question for you. If you were a player on that team and you had to throw the game, what kinds of things do you think you might be able to do so that your team would not win? Obviously, you don't want to be obvious, right? You don't want to be caught. What could you do? Take a minute and... And do a neighbor nudge. Okay, so I, I realize there's lots of ideas, but what, what kind of, anything pop up? If you were going to throw a game as a football player, what, what are some things, what kind of strategies might you use? <laughs> you know, and sometimes they still win. Yeah. But um, boom, psh, yeah, I knew that was coming, Frank. Okay, change the playbook. Yeah, great. There's, they're calling one play. Maybe you run a different one, right? Or you don't. Go ahead. Okay, what else? Purposely not catch the ball. I'm sorry, what? Purposely not catch the ball. Okay, you could purposely underperform, right? I'm running, I'm running, oh, and oops, oops, right? Yeah. Some of us do that quite naturally, but yeah, you could underperform. What else? Wow, yeah. All of a sudden get so that instead of playing, I mean, think about it. you got people blocking, protecting. What happens when a lineman goes, yeah, really, Mr. Quarterback? Go ahead, yeah. <laughs> right? And that only has to happen once. And then how long, how long, how much time in the game does that quarterback keep flinching, wondering if the, if the protection is there? When somebody's supposed to have your back and instead they let you get tackled. Or perhaps as plays are being called, you're in the huddle and you're like, well, wait, 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 why that one? Why couldn't we instead? 
the coach or the quarterback's calling to play. Why? why? And, and so you could disrupt. You could underperform. You could, you could distract. And do you think that would be effective? When you think about the game of football and, and how much everybody's got to play their part, it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much failure on the part of any one player to make a big difference in the game. You see, it's one thing to want to win. It's another thing to play like you intend to win. Remember that as we listen to what Paul has to say. Verse 17. He goes on to say, If anyone destroys God's temple, pause, is he talking about an actual temple? No. What's he talking about? The church, right, the believers in that city. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together, there's that same idea of mutuality, you together are that temple. Now, first of all, you need to know that when Paul says that God will destroy that person, there are a lot of words that Paul could have chosen to talk about punishment or correction, ones that aren't nearly that severe. For him to use the word destroy, I mean, well, even in a game, you can win, right? You can beat a team or you can destroy a team. We all understand the difference. This difference is even more than that. In a sense of church and God and eternity, the word destroy is pretty powerful. But the reason he uses it is because the punishment fits the crime. You see, if anyone disrupts, destroys, causes a team to lose, then God will disrupt, destroy, lose them. Now, he's not talking about eternal security here. But he is talking to people who would intentionally play in such a way so that the team loses. Sometimes it's hard to imagine that a person would act like that if they were indeed a follower of Jesus. You're in a huddle and you almost want to look across the huddle and say, are you playing for us or not? And of course, a person who had been paid to throw the game would have to answer, actually, no, I'm not. I'm working for the other team. He says, for God's temple is sacred. Well, Captain Obvious, of course. I mean, this is God. Of course the temple is sacred, right? I mean, God, temple, sacred. But wait, is he talking about a temple? No. He's talking about a church full of people. Which church full of people is he talking about? Corinth. Okay, wait, 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 wait. God's temple is sacred. The church in Corinth... Is that how we were describing them? Our team name is the Sacred Ones. <laughs> no, we called them the Fornicators. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, Paul says God's temple, which is the church, that church is sacred. You say, what? Am I. I think you're misapplying that because there's nothing sacred about the church in Corinth. 
So then we have to ask ourselves, what, it, what is it that makes a group of people sacred? Is it their behavior? Apparently not. If Corinth was sacred, then it couldn't be because of behavior. But in the context, what makes them sacred is the person to whom they belong and the person who is working among them. And if those things make the church in Corinth sacred, I want to ask you this morning, what does that mean for Crossroads? It's easy for us to say, hey, 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 we're just a group of people fumbling along, humble, nothing sacred here. Are you sure? Because if the church in Corinth could be sacred, then I'm going to suggest that we, this morning, are sacred. Probably didn't think of yourself that way when you came in. Maybe you didn't think about that even as we were singing. You may not feel that way even as I'm speaking to you. But Paul says that the temple of God, the people that he owns, loves, and works among, they are sacred. We're not being prideful. We're not being self-promoting. It's important to know. He says we're sacred. That's why he says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. You say, oh, well, I mean... Mike, okay, I don't know about how sacred we are, but I would never destroy the church. I'm thinking none of you sitting out there are plotting right now to destroy Crossroads. You'd think, that would be terrible. I would never do that. How exactly do you cause a team to lose? You don't go into the huddle and start slashing everybody with a knife. You didn't, do, you didn't plant bombs. You didn't, like, no. We said that when a person simply acts like they're part of the team, but instead purposely underperforms, or purposely does not follow the play as it's called, or intentionally seeks to draw attention to themselves instead of the team as a whole, what we said was the person that doesn't do their part on the team is responsible for that team losing. Oh, my goodness. Which is why Paul says this in verse 18. Don't deceive yourselves. Don't kid yourself. It's interesting. The first little phrase, don't you know creates some tension. This second statement, don't kid yourself, adds to that tension, doesn't it? I I don't know what you're thinking. Don't kid yourself, buddy. Kid myself about what? Don't kid yourself into thinking that there's no way that you or I could be responsible for causing our team to lose. Oh, I would never do that. And yet, by initially underperforming, not playing by the the plays as they're called. How come? I mean, he's over there on the sidelines. He doesn't even play with us. Why does he get to call? I mean, that, and all of a sudden, you become a person who's causing a team 
to lose. Wow. That's the kind of behavior that can destroy a church. Not what you thought. Some of us have stories about like terrible, evil church stories. Church splits, church dissension, horrible things. Yeah, I got it. But I'm going to suggest that that's not how most churches lose. Most churches lose the same way you would make a football team lose. Show up with the jersey, but you play like you want to be on a losing team, not a winning team. You see, just like a team, the body of Christ has different parts. But it's imperative that every part does what it's supposed to do. If you have ever had a body part fail, Lord Jesus, 55 and up, and it's like it's a daily thing. Now, it's kind of neat. I mean, we got a bunch of people here. And every week I hear about another person at Crossroads who's had a part replaced. <laughs> this is awesome. I love it, you know? Because we have trouble functioning when a part doesn't do what it was made to do. Last week we read this passage. I want to read it again. Ephesians 4. Paul says, I, a prisoner of the Lord then, urge you to live a life worthy of your calling. By the way, what's your calling? You're on this team. The calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I don't know how much more clear he could be. But to each of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. What he means is simply this. Even though we're all on the team, everyone is not a quarterback. Everyone is not a lineman. I mean, every team needs a punter or two. Every role is important. I read this uh, little research project. I'm kind of a geek that way. And at a meeting of the American Psychological Association, this guy Jack Lipton, a psychologist at Union College, and along with a couple of other guys that helped him, uh, graduate study work at Columbia University, they presented their findings. They interviewed the members of 11 different orchestras around the, around the world, the biggest, highest name orchestras, the ones that people pay big dollars to go see. And they interviewed people in all the different sections of, of those 11 major symphonies. And they asked them how they perceived the other members of the band, the orchestra. It's kind of interesting. The percussionists were viewed as insensitive, unintelligent, and hard of hearing. <laughs> but most everybody said that the per percussionists were fun-loving. They had a lot of fun. String players were seen as arrogant, stuffy, and unathletic. The orchestra members overwhelmingly chose loud as the primary adjective to describe the brass players. Woodwind players seemed to be held in the highest esteem. They were described as quiet and meticulous, but a bit egotistical. It's really kind of interesting. How in the world does a group of people who look at each other that way 
pull together the kind of music they pull together. But the answer is actually pretty obvious. When it comes right down to it, each of them plays their part well. And they all follow the same conductor. And it doesn't matter how they view one another, because if those two things are happening, they're making beautiful music. I wonder why we think the church would be so different. Verse 11, verse in Ephesians 4. So Christ himself gave the apostles and prophets and evangelists and teachers and percussionists and woodwinds and brass to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. Wouldn't that be a change of pace for Corinth? Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, listen to the, the application in Ephesians 4. Then you will no longer be infants. Boy, does that sound familiar? Tossed back and forth by waves and blown here and there by every kind of teaching, every kind of experience. It's an up day, it's a down day, roller coaster, spiritual life. He goes, that will end. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. I don't know how often you think about Christ as being the head of the body. Um, have you ever done some of those cutouts, maybe down at the shore? Like there's a cutout of a muscle man, but then you stick your head in it? <laughs> right? Little hourglass figure, chilly girl, and then you stick your head in there. And we laugh, right? Because the, the humorous part is the contrast between that head and that body. Everyone knows they don't go together. <laughs> I wonder if it looks like that when Jesus puts his head on our body. I wonder what it would look like if we had a cutout of crossroads and we tried to put Jesus' head on top of that. Would people laugh? Would they say, that's ridiculous? Those two don't match. And yet he says he is the head of this body. From him, he says in verse 16, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This passage and a passage in Corinthians 12 goes on to talk about bodies and how it works. And, you know, we always you know, talk about somebody's beautiful eyes and we never compliment, some, some, compliment somebody's beautiful pancreas. <laughs> I really love your lower intestine. Right? I mean, we just don't, what? Ugh. And, and, and yet, and yet, if you've ever tried to live without a pancreas or a lower intestine, you realize, you know, I could get by with one eye. I can't get by without some of those other parts that we never talk about. Um, I think it was 1981, President Ronald Reagan was shot. Bam. He was out of commission for weeks, months. The most powerful man in the free world was out of commission for weeks, months. And actually, the whole country ran just fine. But that same year, the garbage men in Philadelphia went on strike. In, a, in less than three weeks, there was an outcry on the streets. People were going to be lynched. There was garbage decaying everywhere. I want to ask you, 
Who has the more important job? <laughs> Seriously, folks. You know, I, I, I realize this, and this is just personal. I realize that some of you, in an effort to be kind and, 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 and encouraging to me, you sort of act like, oh, because I'm the lead pastor, I'm a mucky muck, I'm, I'm, I'm so central to, to our church. And can I just tell you that nothing could be further from the truth? I can bust my chops. And there won't be any improvement in what we do. Or, when each of us learns what it is that we contribute to this body, and we all play to our best ability, we follow the playbook, we do our best. We're not going to catch every pass, but we catch everything that we can. When we block for one another, <laughs> I could sit around on my thumbs and the church moves forward because that's how the master designed it to work. 1 Corinthians 12.4, we read this. And there were different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit. Different kinds of service, but the same Lord. Different kinds of working, but all of them in everyone is the same. It's the same God at work. Verse 11, he says, And all these are the work of one and the same Spirit who distributes them to each, just as he determines. He goes on, Just as the body through one has many parts, the, the one has many parts, all its many parts form one body, and so it is with Christ. And then he ends, and later in 1 Corinthians, we're going to get there, And you are that body. So Paul said, don't kid yourself. If you don't know what your job is here, or if you think, oh, you don't understand, I don't really, I don't really perform that well, or I'm not really that skilled, I'm really not that important, you are actually throwing the game. Mike, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm not saying I'm unwilling. I'm saying I don't have any ability. Argue with God who gave you gifts, he says. You say, well, I don't know where they are. We can work with that. We can talk about that. In fact, I want to tell you something. If you don't have a clue what it is that God has equipped you to do among his people, spiritual gifts, if you don't know what yours might be, I'm going to suggest that it's likely that the people around you who know you, they already know what your gifts are. It's easier to see it in somebody else than to see it in ourselves. They probably already know, but you've not asked them. After we do the membership class, as soon as we're done with the membership class, then we usually do a, small, a short class about spiritual gifts. If, if you want to take me up on this, I will sit with you in a classroom, and we will study these passages, and we will figure out where we think your gifts lie, and we'll get you started. If you're sick and tired of throwing a game, he says, don't deceive yourselves, verse 18. If you think you are wise, who do you suppose that would be? Couldn't that be us when we say, well, wait, 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 you don't understand. I'm not throwing the game. I mean, I, mean, I just I show up here. You should be glad I show up here, right? I mean, I like this church. It's good. So I come to stuff sometimes. Yeah. He says, don't kid yourself. You're thinking like the world. 
And if you think you're wise, you think you know better, you think you can show up and, oh, I'm contributing because I'm here at least. Try that in a huddle. Hey, guys. Hi. I have no idea what position I'm playing, but I thought I'd show up. So, I mean, I, I mean I, I'm here, so that's better than nothing, right? And they would say, no, get off the field. If you're not playing, get off the field. Send somebody, send somebody that knows what they're doing. You should become fools. See, the same message that they believed when they first trusted Christ is what they need to go back to now. How much ability did you have to earn eternal life? None. So how in the world did you gain eternal life? I got it as a gift. Who bought that gift for you? Jesus. He bought eternal life and he just gave it to you. Mm-hmm, because I believe him. You still believe him? Mm-hmm. And now you need what? Ability to serve in the church somewhere. I guess. But I don't have any. Really? The guy who gave you eternal life won't give you the ability to serve someplace? Don't be foolish. And, and I'm just going to say this. On behalf of the, all of our ministry leaders who are here, when you say that to them, oh, I would, but you know, I don't have any skill. I don't have any ability. I don't know how to. When you say that, they don't believe you either. Because we've all done it. But we see it when you do it, just like somebody saw it when we did it. Well, it's like, really? I, yeah, I'm not buying this. You're trying to throw the game. Oh, never! Well, then get in the play. He goes on to say, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. You want to play it big time? You want to be a sharp, big, you know, you're going to play that way? It's foolish. It doesn't, it doesn't work. And he quotes a couple of passages we don't have time to get into this morning. He catches the wise in their craftiness. By the way, that's a quote from Job. What's interesting is the person that said that was Eliphaz. Eliphaz was mocking and criticizing Job. And what we find out was later God criticizes Eliphaz. He says, you, you were unloading on my man Job telling him that he's been playing a game. Truth is, somebody's been playing a game, Eliphaz, but it's not Job, it's you. The second passage comes from, this, from Proverbs, and uh, the idea is simply this, that the Lord knows that all the brainiac ideas of us, they don't last. Actually, the end result is that God uses the same smarty-pants attitudes that we think we're tricking him, he uses those on us. That's what Proverbs 1 says. Since they hated the knowledge and they did not choose to fear the Lord, since they would not accept any of my advice and they spurned my rebuke, they will eat the fruit of their ways, and they will be filled with the fruit of their schemes. And for the waywardness of the simple... The waywardness of the simple will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. The truth is, you can either do this thing of church the way you think it should work, it is the American way. When I or other pastors or other leaders try to give you direction, you can cop an attitude. We all understand the American way. 
I don't know where he thinks he's Mr. Like, uh, me and God, you know, me and God, we're good. I worship God my own way. I'll run the play I stink and think we should run. And what's interesting is for a little while you think you get away with it. What God says is, yeah, you know what? When the game is over, oh, you're going to be running that play, yeah, by yourself, right into the other end goalpost. You're going to be running the other way. You're going to be, all oh, Mr. Smarty Pants, you're going to lose all that. I'm going to make sure you lose it just the way you thought you were going to win it. And so he says, come on, no more boasting. Stop with all the favorites. And then he says something interesting, and with this we're going to close. He says, all things are yours. And interesting, they wanted to be on a winner's team. The truth is, the winner, those leaders, were already on their team. He says, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all things are yours. It reminds me of the passage in Romans 8, right? He says, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor present, nor future, nor powers, nothing that, no, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. What's he saying? Nothing can do it. You have everything. Paul is saying, you guys have everything you need. It's all yours already. I think we all know how to pick a losing team. Pretty simple, actually. Just run the plays you want to play. Perform as, as well as you feel like performing. Any team will lose. But you need to know something about this team. This team is sacred. God is the coach. And I want to tell you something else about this team. God's team Imagine playing on a team where everyone else on the team has already won a Super Bowl. We know the coach has got the smarts to do it because he's already won one. We know that quarterback can win a Super Bowl because he's already won one run. That front line, they have already run, won a Super Bowl. They can protect you. Those running backs, those receivers, those guys can catch balls and win Super Bowls because they've already done it. Everyone here has already won a Super Bowl. Everyone at Crossroads is already on a team that has already successfully turned the world upside down. I'm thinking we have what it takes to play together and win games. The only question is whether or not you're going to play like you're on the team. Paul says, it's time. Let's pray. With every head bowed and eyes closed, I just want to give you a second to process. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, today would be the day. But if you're a believer, and if, if this portion of Scripture has done to you what it did to me, then you're feeling conviction. And I want to assure you that those of you that have been playing hard, working hard, he is not saying to you, oh, you still have not been playing hard enough. Leave more of it on the field. That's not what he's saying. He's really speaking to the fact that all of us need to perform our part. Just our part. But if you know you're here 
And for the most part, your contribution is less than what a winning team would expect. Then I want to encourage you. I want to invite you to respond in obedience to God's word this morning and make a determination that you are going to start learning to play like a winning team. Father God, everything we have comes from you, and we have everything we need. That's what Paul has been saying to us. And so we thank you for that. And today, we are convicted, and many of us need to make a change in how we respond to your people and to opportunities for ministry. They're not nice options if we could get around to it or free up the time. It's why you have left us here. So help us to remember that and to put you first because everybody wants to be a part of a winning team. And now, Father, as we receive this offering, we acknowledge that, again, everything we have comes from you. You provide the surplus in our lives. Oh, we could always use more, but this is a chance for us to show that we trust you as we give a portion of our income back to you. It supports this work, but you're more interested in developing our faith in you. I thank you for those who've been giving faithfully, and I pray for those who have just begun to give that they would learn to do it sacrificially and joyfully. And I ask that you'd use these gifts to expand this team. Take us to a Super Bowl. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Intro music by bensound.com. Visit us online at crossroads-cc.org.